Hello again. You're listening to the Feed the Ball Salon Podcast, brought to you by Golf Digest. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and here in Volume 6, my friend and golf builder Jim Urbina and I are going to be speaking with architect Gil Hans. Many of us have been sheltering and in self-isolation for over two months now, but it's becoming clear that many parts of the economy are slowly beginning to churn again. Many of you are already back on the road, and I know many more of you never stop traveling and working, and it's likely that Jim and I and many of our prospective salon guests will also soon be picking up where we left off before, at least to some degree. Over the last few weeks, we've tried to do our best to take advantage of this situation and do something unique by having deep, thoughtful, fun, three-way conversations with some of our favorite people working in the design game. And we'll continue to do this as long as possible, even though we know at some point these discussions will have to be more spaced out. The last talk with Mike DeVries covered aspects of routing the golf course. If you haven't listened to that yet, it and the first four volumes of the salon are available at feedtheball.com. In this conversation with Gil Hance, we didn't narrow the focus to a specific topic. We just let it fly. I know you'll enjoy hearing Gil talk with Jim and I on a wide variety of subjects. Let me know what you think on Twitter at FeedTheBall or at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com. Leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. And most of all, continue to stay safe. Let's get to our talk. Here's Jim Urbina, me, and Gil Hance. Hey, Derek, you know, sometimes people question what a golf course designer, what a golf course architect, what his role is. And and I'm convinced sometimes that golfers think that we're just out there to make their day miserable. <laughs> it's that's true, so right? far from the truth. Oh, uh, well, it's just why did he why did he do that? Uh, why did they do that to me? And, and Derek, when you land in a bunker, you're thinking, well, come on, man, why did you put this here? You know, you take it personal, right? <laughs> Some people do, yeah, they absolutely, that asshole. And so, <laughs> and so I do want to read this quote from Mackenzie that kind of sheds light on what he expected uh, from other architects and what he expected from himself. So if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote. Okay, I'd like to hear it. And th- Derek, this quote is from uh, Alistair McKenzie's Golf Architecture book, and I quote this. The golf course architect must have the sporting instinct and if he has had a training in many and variety branches of sport and has analyzed those characteristics which provides a maximum of pleasurable excitement in them so much the better the architect he should be able to put himself in the position of the best player that ever lived and at the same time be extremely sympathetic towards the beginner and the long handicap player And finally, he should have, above all, have a sense of proportion and be able to come to a prompt decision as to what is the greatest good for the greatest number, Mm -hmm. end quote. And so, Derek, I know that you and I, as we we play golf and and we analyze and critique other other golf courses that we play in architects, Mackenzie said it right off the bat. He should have, above all, have a sense of proportion. What is the greatest good to the greatest number of people on the golf course? And so even though when you were in that bunker 
and you said, God, why here? And and when I land in a, in a hazard and, and I take two or three to get out, I think, come on, man. But, you know, it really is about proportion and it is about the greatest good to the greatest number. And that you cannot only think about the good player. You must be sympathetic to the beginner. Mm-hmm. And that's really what every golf course should give every golfer as they play the game of golf. Right. I think what we've seen in the last 20 years or so in in modern architecture, at least at the highest levels, is that is an understanding that's demonstrated in the way the architecture is turning out. And it goes back to, I, I think of it in this way, Jim. Yes, some people can look at these golf courses and say, oh, look at that ferocious, hairy bunker and look how deep it is and scary looking. But if you look, there's usually a tremendous amount of width around the bunker. There's a lot of short grasses on the best new courses. So they're very accommodating to play. I think the greatest compliment you can give what's happening in design today is that there's almost an emphasis in providing a way to play around without losing a golf ball and yet still finding ways to make it challenging. And there are lots of different and interesting and creative ways to do that. But fundamentally, it goes back to this quote that you're you're uh, going all the way back to Alistair McKenzie and what he's saying is finding that balance and not being to go back to your to your initial comments is that architects now aren't trying to punish you. They're really trying to do the opposite. They're trying to accommodate an enjoyable round of golf. You have tricks that you can use to make it challenging for really good players. You can make the greens contoured in an interesting way. You can set pins in certain locations. You can make them or encourage them to try to take on hazards but you give them a lot of space to play around for those for that uh, for that uh, grandfather and grandmother who are out there playing <laughs> around a golf. They can get around it in one ball, and I think that's a real hallmark of modern architecture that that isn't celebrated enough, frankly. And I think you're right about uh, about sometimes these bunkers can be uh, imposing, and that 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 the new style of architecture allows you to play around them. And, you know, Derek, when you play golf, and I know you've done it, I've done it, we always say, you know, I could have, I could have, I should have played it this way, or I could have played it over here. And we end up, you know, second guessing ourselves. But really, that's what architecture is about, navigating the hazards. And I think you're spot on with your observation about even though there are bunkers uh, in the line of play uh, directly from point A to point B, the New the new age of, of design has allowed you to play around them if you chose to, and it's it's only on you that you chose to take the direct line, and and some of these really cool designs, real thoughtful designs, you land in a bunker. That was your choice, and uh, sometimes I say I could have, should have, would have gone around this way or that way, but that is the game, and it, it makes you go back out and play it time and time again to navigate those hazards. I thought you were spot on in that observation. Yeah, and, and to your to the passage that you just shared, you know, McKenzie used the word sympathetic. That really sums it up, and it's not a new idea. I mean, what, what you and your contemporaries are doing at some of these wonderful, wonderful new sites isn't revolutionary. It's really just going back to those fundamentals of golf and strategy and playability and challenge that we've talked about on this podcast over and over again. It's just going back to those concepts and ideas and values that were 
that were really discovered and and in, implemented in golf courses in the 19 teens and 20s. That's where it started. Those guys back then understood it. And then as golf kind of matures through the 20th century, things start to get, you know, a little more tighter and a little more titled. There's sort of a certain element of machoism that creeps into it. Uh, the The public became really infatuated with watching professional golf on television, professional golf tournaments. That probably tipped the scales a little bit. They wanted to see golf courses look like the ones the pros played that were a little tighter, you know, a little more um, not didn't have as much room for for creativity or diversity it rewarded high straight aerial shots and eventually you get to this point in the 80s and 90s where you know the the value of architectures you know where the money is it's on you know tight golf courses golf courses that that look and play difficult water hazards ornamental features uh you know around (laughs) around every green and it was so it's really been a, a striking reversal for you and your contemporaries to get back to this classical era and this classical understanding of the way golf should should be played, which is, as McKenzie says, sympathetic. And, you know, you just described a, a term that, that, that I could sum up in, in two words, no fun. <laughs> it's, well, it's certainly not the greatest good for the greatest number. It's not the greatest amount of fun for the greatest people. Really good players like those golf courses. So it's, I'm sure it's fun oh, no for question. them, but <laughs> no question. for, for no the question. most of us. And we're seeing that, that, that um, people who have the means, which unfortunately is not everybody, but people who have the means are willing to pay good coin and take good time out of their lives to travel to play these golf courses that do provide that wide, broad, fun, multi, multi-flex style of golf in really creative and beautiful environments. And you know what? I, I am very cognizant that a well-groomed swing, a swing that is, is honed to perfection, should be rewarded for those skilled shots that they practice hours and hours and hours. And when that ball lands on that green, they want it to land where they've practiced for hours. So I totally respect that, Derek. But I also have to hearken back, as you just said, what Mackenzie talked about years ago, the greatest good to the greatest number. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with hard golf courses. You know, everybody wants a challenge. We all want to get better, to to improve but I don't have the time to sit on a practice ground driving range and hit hours and hours of golf balls. When I go play, I want to go have a match and I want to go have fun and walk and and play. And I'll leave those other golf courses that you described the 60s, 70s, and 80s, those uh, much more difficult tests of golf. I'll leave those for others. I will seek out the ones that are fun to play. And there's always been relatively easy golf courses too. And every decade there have been golf courses that are, that are purely functional and accessible and, and not, not that demanding, but often what they lacked was interest. You know, they didn't have, they didn't have great architecture or, or really compelling features. So what we're seeing now, and I keep mentioning uh, you and, and your contemporaries what we're seeing now from you and your contemporaries is a combination of really what, what I think people are, are responding to is is the the enjoyment factor is high, but they're also interesting. And when I talk about your contemporaries, of course, one stands out 
Gil Hans is going to join us, and we're going to have a nice long talk with him. He, Jim, is probably the hottest architect in the world right now. Um, he's getting such great projects. He's got a, a lot of. Uh, he's got some some stiff tailwinds behind him. He's had some great new courses open. He's getting great properties. I'm curious, you know, you got a little taste of that. You you were working at, at Renaissance with Tom Doak in the late 90s, early 2000s, into the 2000s, when Tom was kind of the hot architect and getting great projects, great sites. What does that feel like when, when you spend so much time, and Gil spent many, many years kind of toiling in the, in the background and, and, and fighting for it and not, not getting like the Hoopy Match Club sites and not getting the winged foot restoration job? Uh, but then, then he he kind of put his time in it as 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 Tom and you did in the '90s. Then it hit. What does that feel like when you f- kind of arrive as an architectural firm? What's the feeling? How how thrilling is that? Because that must be what Gil is experiencing right now. Well, you talked about a tailwind for for Gil. You're, 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 it's not a tailwind, man. It's a hurricane mm. wind behind Gil, and the the feeling that. The calls that you're getting are looking at sites that you dream about just having one chance, just one chance to have a piece of property like that. I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of friends in the golf design business that would love would love to have worked at Bandon Dunes, would have loved to work at some of the places that that I have got to work and and that others uh, as lucky as I have have got to work. They never get that chance. And and so sometimes I feel, I don't feel, I just, I feel bad. I, I was like, man, why did, why did I get this chance? Why did Renaissance golf get that chance? And, and why didn't others for, for a lot of people, you know, uh, you never get that ocean site. You never get that beautiful topography, the belly kneels of the world, the sand hills of the world. It's an awesome feeling, Derek, and, and I'll never forget. I'll never forget when we finished, uh, or when Tom and I finished Pacific Dunes. I didn't think it could get any better. I really didn't. Right. I, 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 I'm done. I, I've raised my hand. I've checked out. I'm, I'm going out the back door. <laughs> uh, I, I, I thank you for everything. Uh, I, I can't believe I got to work there. And guess what? There's more land like that. Yeah. And I get to look at other land with Mr. Mr. Mike Geyser, and I get to look at more land with with Michael Geyser, and I'm thinking it's still out there, and 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 why am I so lucky to be a part of that? And that's what Gil's on right now. He's on that ride. He's on those special sites. Uh, Bill and Ben, they're on those special sites. You can't thank your. You just can't thank the rainbow, the, the the God, if you believe in God. You can't thank him enough for having that opportunity to be on that site. And right now, Gil has got a hurricane wind behind him. And I know if I'm going to interview for a restoration job and, and, and they're going to hire Gil Hands, I'll just go ahead and pardon myself right away. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say, well, if you're hiring Gil Hands, I'll just go ahead and exit out. I'll, I'll stop at uh, In-N-Out Burger and uh, and uh, mope, mope all the way yep. home. <laughs> There's a great uh, documentary on ESPN right now called The Last Dance. It's about Michael Jordan and his and all everything about that he's ever done. And and you watch these old clips and. 
you know, you, you've, he's been away from basketball for a while. You kind of forget how incredible he was. And when he would get hot, when he'd get on a hot streak, I mean, he would just make the opponents look foolish. And I, I don't, I don't mean to say <laughs> everybody, but Gil is looking foolish. That's not, that, that's a terrible thing to say, but he's on a hot streak and it's like, well, how do you stop that? You know, yeah. he, the great ones parlay one success into another. They know how to capitalize it. And of course, if he wasn't also doing spectacular work and work that was being really well received and, and well judged and fun to play, he, he wouldn't keep getting jobs. So he knows what Agreed. he's doing. He's talented. He's on a hot streak. So uh, we're going to talk to him and, and, and get a little feel for, for what that's like, what it's like to be Gil Hans right now. Uh, and I'm looking could, forward I to could it. Hardly wait. Yeah. I could hardly wait. I'm going to ask him if I could step in for him uh, <laughs> just for a, just for a week to see what it's like. Right. Yeah. What is it? What is it? I, I kind of wonder, like, does he ever sleep? He's so busy. They've got so many jobs. He's got so many things going on right now. It's, uh, but I, he's doing a pretty good job of handling it, isn't he? And he deserves it. He deserves all of it because he's such a gracious man. Well, let's talk to Gil. Are you ready? Let's let's do it. I okay. can hardly wait. All right. Here's here's Jim and I with Gil Hands. You know, Gil, I I joked with somebody else about driving to a golf site, and it's almost like you're reenacting what Tom Bend- Bendelow did a uh, hundred thousand years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely. You have- do you have an old Packard that you're in? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> no, and, and I've flown I've flown three times and have not had a bad experience on any of the flights. Um, you know, they were it, the ones in late March were there was like five people on the plane. I mean, it was no. I flew about three weeks, two weeks ago, and back from Dallas, and there were about fifty people on the plane. But you're still able to kind of. I mean, I just wore a hoodie and put a mask on and just kind of hunkered in my seat and touch wood didn't have any issues. Things are starting to move and shake a little bit for yeah, better or for worse. I know. Yeah. I mean, we you know, we had a funny situation yesterday at, um, Baltus roll, which somebody asked, you know, what's, what are the changes? And, and I was raking a green with, uh, with Jim knows Jeff Stein and we were kind of raising oh, yeah. the expansion of the 17th green. And, and I put my rake down I went and did something. I came back and he had picked it up and I said, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, what? That's my rake. <laughs> like, uh-uh. And he threw it down and then I had to go, we had to get, we've got like Clorox and we wiped the handle down. And, <laughs> and that's kind of the new reality is that wow. you know, get in your machine in the morning, you, you wipe everything down, you check it all out and you know, Lock it at night so hopefully nobody goes in it, and um, you know you you stay six feet away from each other as, as much as we can. But you're you're outside, which has always been what I felt was kind of our saving grace is we're working outdoors, and and Jim knows this better as or as well as I do. And you're in a machine; there's nobody else sitting in there with you, so you're, yeah. you're kind of in your own little world. You should be okay. Well, I can tell you. Um, I, Gil, you may do the same thing as I do. I use this machine as my social distance to keep people from bothering me. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. I'm in my creative moment. I'm going to close this door. (laughs) All of our guys know that. They're they're kind of like when, when Jim or I are on site, they're like, oh, just leave them alone. Just, just all they want to do is, is machine time. Don't if they're in the them. cab, yeah, don't come knocking. 
just don't come around or and, and the, you get these like sheepish looks like i'm sorry i had to get you out of your machine kind of looking down at the ground All right, what is it? oh god that's so true <laughs> <laughs> you gotta pull your earplugs out because you're jamming to some music <laughs> yeah no it's very true and and I'm not getting any younger, so you got to get out of the seat and go down the track and get off the machine. I used to jump off the tracks and hide off to the handrail and making sure, you know, if the guys ever start, like, offering me a hand to get off the tracks, that's when I'm losing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little stepladder <laughs> custom made. It's like five feet down, but it feels like a mile. <laughs> Man, this never used to hurt. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Gil. Uh, That's so cool. You just can't, you just, people don't understand. It's just, there's a zone that you're in and you just feel, you just want to stay there for a while because it just, everything goes away while you're being creative. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And and I I do notice with the younger guys, I don't, I mean, they're constantly like you look over and they're constantly texting or doing this and i'm trying to think god i I just i try to ignore my phone as much as i can um to try not to like you said not to break the momentum or the thought process or wherever you're working and plus you know we're we're not on site you know all of our guys have the luxury and we're delighted that we can do this and and it certainly adds to the final product that they're there for weeks and months on end and and you and i and, and jim and i are jumping in and out and it's like i'm only here for three or four days so yeah. I need to maximize my time. I don't have time to spend 20 minutes texting or doing this or that. So it really comes down to sort of prioritization of you know, when you're there, you really need to make the most of it. And do you ever find, Gil, I do this a lot. I'm, I'm curious if you do and, and Jim as well. Do you ever find that you have to kind of, when you return to the site, you have to kind of be by yourself to to grasp everything again so that, you it all comes back to you so that you're ready to go or do you feel like you could just jump on and 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 get going i usually just jump on and get going um just i think it's more that creative energy of okay i'm here i want to work i want to do something and eventually we'll like sort of filter maybe later that night or that evening or we'll say to the guys hey after lunch let's go run around and look at stuff but yeah, I'm usually just want to jump right in the machine and get going on on what we need to to get done. And then somebody like Seamus or or Neil Cameron or Ben Hillard or you know those guys will be like, hey, this is kind of we need you to look at this and give us the okay because irrigation wants to go. So if there's something pressing like that, then you, you take care of that right away. But if it's not if there's nothing pressing that they need an answer on, um, I prefer to just jump right in the machine and go. And you know what, Derek, and a lot of people don't know this, but the most creative time for a, a design, and, and Gil, we've we've been arguing this back and forth between Derek and I and others. Uh, we've we've felt that the routing was the most important part of the golf course creation, but I'm convinced that the shaping and the detail work is just as important. How do you feel about that 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 split between uh, what's more important, the routing or the shaping? Well, it, yeah, that's a difficult one because without a good routing, you need the routing to set you up for success. 
So I guess in my mind, the routing is probably more important because it allows you to ultimately maximize whatever the site has in it. Like, you know, you can shape the best greens and the best bunkers and the best do all that detail work. And if the golf holes don't feel like they belong or they didn't really take advantage of the best aspects of the property, then I think that golf course is probably worse off. Um, and so I, I, I don't disagree with the notion that the shaping is, is critically important. And I think that's why you and, and I and, and what we learned from, well, what I learned from Tom, what you learned from Pete. Um, and then, you know, you obviously spent a lot of time working with Tom on, on that is that, you know, that that's critical to the process, but without the bones in place and without the routing there first, I don't know if you can overcome. That's yeah, an interesting question. I don't know if you can overcome a bad routing with good shaping or can you <clears throat> vice versa? Can good shaping, you know, can you, you know, when you've got a great routing and, and bad shaping, you know, which is better. It's kind of hard because, to figure that one out. Well, I, the reason I ask is because at Rio, I wouldn't say that that golf course was blessed with what's natural land farms, yet you created one of the coolest things ever. So it, the shaping had to complement the routing uh, in, in that case. It, it, it did. And I think, but I, I think what, what we looked at um, was, was we knew we had, we basically had a three-part site. We had a site that had what we felt like was pretty good natural character and contour, which was the upper part of the site. Then we had the middle part of the site, which we had to mine, you know, we had to create dig lakes in order to create enough fill to get that part of the site out of out of the ground. And then we had the bottom section, which was basically through the jungle. So it was how do we navigate <clears throat> through and get the routing to go through those three uh, distinct parts of the property um, so that, you know, you kind of visit them at the start and then you come back to the good stuff at the finish and you traverse through the middle. So it was, you're right. The shaping definitely helped create the landforms when they weren't there on, especially in the middle part of the property, but the routing itself, a lot of the decisions we made were that, Hey, we, we, we can't just sort of blow our whole load on the, the, six or eight really good holes that were there naturally at the end. We needed to start there, finish there, but we needed to figure out how we traverse through the other stuff. And then ultimately how do we, we build those things. And as you know, when you're on site all that time, you have time to figure out how that shaping can work. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So I think that that's really the, the critical component of, you know, you get the bones in place, you figure out how you want to lay out your golf course, but then that luxury of time, uh, you know, it, it, even though we I talked a little bit ago about, you know, being, you know, maximizing your time on site because it's not as, as generous as it, it maybe was at one point in time. But you, all your guys still have that that luxury of time. And, and in the scheme of things, um, as it relates to most golf course architects, you know, you and, and, and Tom and Bill and Ben and, and, and us, and Mike DeVries, we, we all kind of work with that larger scale of time on site. And I think that's ultimately what leads to the success. Did it let you go back and play with the holes at Rio that you didn't like, or did you feel confident that it uh, left well enough alone, you could move on to other things? You know, we, we do this thing and, and Jim, Jim calls it the cooling off period. 
<laughs> he just says, listen, that, that hole's going, you know, if, if those of us have kids, it's like, okay, that hole's on a timeout right now. Um, <laughs> you know, we're going to let that one kind of stew and we're not quite sure it's right, but let's go over here and work on this for a little while. Like right now uh, in Frisco, um, I was there in, in, for the PGA of America course. I was there for about two and a half weeks straight and just was in a groove and it was great and just kind of shape, 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 shape. And then when I left, we kind of gave directions on the 14th green and then Jim went back in and he said, listen, I, I know you told Seamus it should do this and, and I did this, but maybe we should just let it be in the cooling off period until you come back and we can kind of walk through it. So, you know, you, you, you have time to allow that to happen. You just need to get far enough out in front because, you know, I mean, the, the thing that, that most people don't realize is there's obviously there's a schedule for this and the shapers lead the train. I mean, we've got to get far enough out ahead so that the guys who are going to do the drainage and, and the other work come in behind us. But if we get far enough ahead, we can let things go into that cooling off period. If they're right on our ass as we go around the property, then it's like, oh, man, we can't. We, we, we got to finish that because the irrigation's coming. And, and so there are a lot of things that we do that ultimately set the table for everybody else that, you know, the dozens of people that work with us out in the field to come in behind and, and ultimately finish stuff. So we've got to be efficient in how we do things. And, and, and one other thing that Jim is great about and really talks an awful lot about is that architecture will drive the schedule. We know we need to be responsible and, and we know we have timelines and we have deadlines for grassing and we have you know owners who are anticipating opening at a certain point in time. And that all factors into it. But if we don't feel good about a golf hole, we're not going to let them irrigate it. We're not going to let them drain it. And we're certainly not going to let them grass it. So we'll do the best we can to be efficient within that. But at the end of the day, if we can't come to a conclusion, we're not going to settle and say, okay, yeah, that's fine. Let's just move on. We, we don't do that. And I know you don't either. Well, that's funny. It happened at Pacific Dunes, the irrigation contractor. Derek, you don't know this, or maybe you do know about this, but uh, Gail is absolutely right that there are people waiting behind you for you to do your work because you paid them to do some kind of work themselves, drainage, irrigation, grassing. So you've paid somebody to be behind you, but you don't want them to be behind you too close. And I remember the 14T box at Pacific Dunes. The irrigation contractor was coming up on me, and he said, Jim, i got to plow that, that, that irrigation line in there. And I said, it's not ready yet. And Gil knows that feeling of being pressured to get something to look right. And I said, do not put that pipe in the ground because I am not ready. And so the dilemma, Derek, between what Gil and I are talking about, Jim Wagner, his associate, is that we understand there's timelines. We understand we've paid somebody to do irrigation and drainage behind us. But as Gil says, the art of the of the architecture drives the final product. And God, I hate to be rushed, but yet I know that's their job, Gil. It's their job. They got they got to get right behind us. Yeah, and and it's and it's our job to deliver to the client, obviously the best product we possibly can, but also being mindful of his or her money and his or her schedule. So you're right. There's, I mean, we're, we're, we're both really lucky in that we, we learn from the best in the business and, and both, you know, Pete and, and certainly Tom 
have always kept, you know, quality to be of, of the highest order and to get those golf holes right, no matter how many times you have to redo them. And, um, and I think that we're, we do the best we possibly can to strike the balance, but we will always draw the line. And we've never had to do it yet, but uh, we've been close to, you know, getting to a point where an irrigation guy said, well, I'm putting that in. And, and he just, you just look over your shoulder and say, okay, I got a D five and he's got a cat 312 right there we can, right, we can pull it right back out of the ground if you feel the necessity to go ahead and do it and that generally uh, stops things and gets everybody moving in the right direction well i uh, unfortunately i did do that at asu because <laughs> pete told me he didn't like it so we tore it out and when pete talks people listen absolutely and so i did i wasn't it wasn't my proudest moment <laughs> but I did it because Pete said, I don't like it. Let's fix it. Okay. <laughs> we'll fix it. Well, yeah. That brings up an interesting question. It comes up in, in my discussions a lot, and I'm always fascinated. When I hear a, a Jim Urbina or a Gil Hans talk about the, the process you use when you're on site, and some people call it design-build, but it, it really is that Pete Dye method of kind of not being reliant on plans and engineering structures. But other people that I talked to, they were brought up that way. That's all they know. They, they're they adamant, just as adamant as you guys are, that the way to build a golf course is to plan it out on paper and then bring that or, or come up with a set of plans where you could just hand it off to a contractor. Even if the contractor had never built a golf course before, the plans are detailed enough that they could execute that plan. It seems like, Gil, that I, I can't imagine you working in that way, but how important is it? is your mentorship. You've mentioned it a few times. Do you think that mentality or however you approach design is strictly relying upon who you came up with, who you learned from, or is there something uh, like a nature versus nurture aspect to it as well, whereas the creative brain can only operate in certain environments, whether it's very highly structured or very loose and artistic, like you are talking about creating in the field. Yeah, I think, I mean, I had the, the really good fortune that um, I won the Dreer Award scholarship from Cornell, just as Tom Doak had won uh, three or four years ahead of me. And I worked in, in the office of uh, Hawtrey and son. So Fred Hawtrey was right. a patriarch at that time, and Martin uh, was his son. And now Martin's obviously continued to run that, that business. And they were very much of that mindset of produce a, a very elaborate and very detailed set of plans and, and send it out and allow a contractor to build it and then make uh, infrequent site visits. And it worked out great for them. And it was something that I was able to actually just get thrown into. And then prior to my going to Great Britain, I had worked, spent the summer working for Tom uh, Doak up at High Point and had learned just the most ragtag, low budget, but really cool sort of this is how you do things. And, um, in this pandemic, uh, probably like most of us were, you know, we go through our stuff and we're cleaning out a lot. Of, and I found some old photos of the crew, um, at, at high point. And we basically at lunchtime, all the guys who had either been to college or were in the golf sort of into golf sat at one side and all the guys who'd been to prison, uh, pretty much sat over in another group. <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting, uh, construction crew. And so, you know, learning and, and experiencing that and being outside and, and, you know, the dust and the dirt, that to me just felt alive. And while I understood the methodology that the Hawtreys use, and, and I no doubt that they produce really fine golf courses from it, I just didn't feel like that was something that we really wanted, that I really wanted to do. And then when Tom offered me the opportunity to come and work for him, 
um, and, and be part of that process, then it just crystallized my opinion on, on, on how that works. And, but that's not for everybody. I mean, it, it really isn't. And golf architecture is so subjective. So I don't think you can say this, there's a right way or a wrong way to do it. And like you suggested, there are some guys that really, you know, fervently believe that, Hey, this is the best way to, to get the job done. Jim and I, uh, Jim Wagner and I, and Jim Urbina and I, we, we feel differently. And, and that's fine that there are other ways to do it. I mean, it's obviously, you know, you want to have 31 flavors. You don't want to have everything be vanilla or chocolate or, or one certain way. So I, I can't begrudge people the way that doing it that way. I just feel like the way we practice is just it, you feel alive. You know, you, you're in contact with the dirt. You're you're. You're in in the field. You're with the guys. There's just such a camaraderie and a bonding and, and pulling together. Sorry, uh, pulling together on on in in the same direction. And I I can't imagine building golf courses without that feeling because it seems to me like I always equate it to when I listen to you talk. It's the creative process is horizontal. It's spread, and of course you're the boss and Jim's the boss, but it goes through you directly into your crew so it's horizontal whereas the old other way of building it is hierarchical it's vertical you know you have the the guy whose name's on the door a a group of associates and then they're dictating down to contractors and they're dictating down to somebody else so it's uh, there's less ability to trade ideas when it's vertical and horizontally you know you're working and on the you're standing on the same level so to speak Right. And I think that whoever's going to wind up playing your golf courses is going to experience with hopefully with their feet on the ground and a bag over their shoulder or walking, you know, with caddy. And I think for us to be there and walking that site every single day and experiencing it and feeling it, we will get to understand so much more closely the experience that the golfer will have. Obviously we, you know, we can hit shots, but they're just going to land in the dirt and stay there. You know, we're not going to be able to experience the play of it. And hopefully we're, we're all talented enough at our jobs that we get that part right. But the experience of being there, what's it like at six 30 at night on a, on a summer evening and what's, what's the wind do. And, you know, on May 13th and it, you know, those types of feelings I don't think can ever be discounted. And I just feel like the, the way that we all have chosen to build golf courses is, and is so much more personal And it's just you get so wrapped up in the process and you get so much into it that it's it's I think if you're any good at your craft, you want to be as involved as you personally can or have your craftsman. And that may be too grandiose a term for for what we do, but you want to have your craftsmen have their fingers in it and, and be in control of the design process and the creative process as much as you possibly can not to be. A control freak, but just to to make sure it, 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 it's all right. And you bring up a good point about the craftsmanship. One of the things that I've noticed about looking at Gil Hands, Jim Wagner golf courses, is that the detail work that goes into those little one and two inch rolls, and the detail work that goes into the visual heights of where you stand. You cannot, Gil, correct me if I'm wrong, you cannot get those details in a two-dimensional plan. Am I right or wrong? No, you're right. You're right. I don't, I, even, I mean, 
I don't even pretend to understand a half for half a second how, what you can do with computer modeling and 3D, but you can't get that. I mean, maybe at some point in time you'll be able to, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to translate that into the ground. And, you know, we like our chances when our guys do that translating, um, I think better than if we just allowed somebody else to take that on. And I know that you can draw very well. I've seen some of your drawings, some of your sketches, yet you chose not to use that as your banner, but, but, but standing on, in front of a bulldozer or on an excavator, you chose that as your, your banner. So you have the ability to do both. You obviously chose one that suits your needs better. Yeah. I mean, I'm not as good at drawing. I mean, I've seen other guys do stuff that I go, wow. Um, but you're right. I, I've <clears throat> somehow I can, you know, see through, through the shaping. I can anticipate what something's going to look like. I can start off with a, a concept and a premise and then allow that to evolve through controlling a piece of machinery, um, versus controlling a pencil or, or a piece of paper. And I, I think that that allows us not only to, to, project the picture better, but it allows us to determine fully what the third dimension looks like. And that's the thing that, that Jim and I talk an awful lot about with our guys is just allowing, you know, what is it in the third dimension? What, what in the third dimension made that bunker line change or what in the third dimension made that fairway line move to the left or to the right? And if they, there is nothing in the third dimension, then we say, well, maybe we need to rethink that. Maybe that decision was just kind of a squiggly line painted on a piece of paper or painted on a piece of ground. We we need to talk about that third dimension and how that that relationship between what we lay upon it uh, has to be critically right. And that's where I think you're, you're right on the detail work. It's it's just finishing. It's it, I don't know who's trying to call me, but hopefully it's not somebody looking for a job. Um, I'm sorry. I don't even know if you guys can hear the phone ringing, but, um, it's one of those things where, um, you know, we, we talk about finishing strong. Um, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't really matter how much, um, you do at the, at the start and how you come out of the gates. It's gotta be those last touches and the last, um, observation of either the client or the people you're working with, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is run out of town quickly. It's like, okay, we're done. We're out of here. Moving on yeah. to the next project because yeah. that's, the, that's the lasting impression. Yeah, that's right. So if I, if my, if I may ask about the detail work, I saw some of your first designs, Apple book, uh, and, and French Creek and, and today you uh, and tomorrow and, and the next day you'll be off to some unbelievable sites You've done Stream Song, Ahoopy, Pinehurst. From the very first days at Alperbrook and Innisgrown, French Creek, to Stream Song and Pinehurst and Ahoopy, has your philosophy changed? Has it got better or is it the same and just refined? I, I think it's the same and I think it's just refined. And, and you know, you. You know this as well. It's there's a confidence level that you build up over a period of time, and I think then the other the other critical component is something our good friend Bill Coor talks an awful lot about, and that's restraint. Um, you learn over time how to be more restrained in how you approach properties. You know, when you're younger, you just want to 
you, you want to do it. Every idea you've ever seen in your life, of <laughs> course, it's like, I need to do, that. I need to do a, a reverse Redan with a plateau, you know, double plateau on the front and a punch ball all in one hole. And you're like, well, how about that cross bunker at French Creek going uphill? Yeah. So, and, and, and so it's those sorts of things that you learn to back away from. But I think one of the things that, that's been consistent with us from, from day one, and a lot of it stems from Bill Kittleman, uh, the longtime pro at Marion, who Jim and I, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned Tom Doak an awful lot, and I've learned a ton from Tom, but probably the biggest mentor to me in, in the business has been Bill Kittleman. Um, the, the way that he, you know, was the golf pro at Marion for 25, 30 years, and literally looked at that golf course every day and looked at the features. And in my mind, what you Wilson built out there and the way that the Valentine family had nurtured it and and let it evolve um, for a long period of time was sort of the height of beauty um, as far as features are related. And Bill taught Jim and I so much about that type of relationship and just that you know, just how you can tie things together and how you can finish things off and how that if you can somehow manufacture evolution, like if you can somehow figure out a way to make a bunker look like it's 20 years old when it's one year old, yeah. and you can look at a way to give this things a patina or a certain age. I mean, he used to do some crazy stuff. Like he would literally, he found out that, that bird seed contains like the worst noxious weed seeds that you can possibly find, but birds like them. And you know, you got like some, and all this stuff. And he would literally top dress bunker faces with bird seed thinking, Oh, you can get this nasty stuff to grow up. Wow. Wow. And he wanted to take like salt that you, um, he took salt that you put on your driveway in the wintertime. Yeah. Cast that over. And he said, I want to make this stuff look like it has the pox or the mange. And <laughs> this is all these sort of crazy different ideas on how you achieve evolution. How do you achieve maturity early on? And I think a lot of that stuck with Jim and I, and it really and that- think about how does this thing look like it's been here forever, even though it's only been here for a year and a half or two years and, or, okay, after five years, it's going to look like 20 years. That's the fastest we can, we can speed up maturity and speed up evolution. And so I think that what Bill taught us about that type of detail work and, and taught us about the relationship between features and, and how everything ties together. And, and, you know, you may have heard me say this because I've said it a few times, but Bill talked about the golf course being like a, a tapestry, like one of these great old tapestries you'd see at some French monastery from the you know 1100s. And the center of the tapestry, meaning the greens, tees, fairways, are all sort of tightly wound still hundreds of years later, very vibrant. The colors are all kind of there because they were put in the center. They were protected from the ravages of age. Yet when you get to the edges, they sort of frayed and frittered and the, it's not as vibrant and not nearly. And that's how a golf hole should fit in nature. You know, you, you basically produce the center being very tight and cause that's the standards that most people want and, under, and expect. Yet as you get to the edges, you blur those edges, you do everything you can to tie that golf course back into its natural landscape, either through vegetation or grading or whatever it is. And that helps to speed that maturity, it, it speeds that evolution up. And so I think Jim and I, well, I don't think I know we've been 
the benefactors of, of all that wisdom and creativity and, and, and craziness. Um, and I think that that's permeated everything that we we've done from Innescrone to Applebrook to French Creek to Rustic Canyon, and then all the way to, you know, the Olympics, Olympic course, a hoopie, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's been a, a constant with us. Well, that was the biggest compliment I ever got for Pacific Dunes uh, by Ron Witten. He told me it looked like it'd been there forever. And so <laughs> that you couldn't, you couldn't get a better compliment than that. I agree. So, I, the, yeah. The, sorry to have, the two things that we like is it looks like it's been there forever. And then I had, I had so much fun. Yeah. If we hear either of those, or if we hear both of them, then we're just like, okay, that was, you know, we're, we're set. That's, that's like you said, the highest form of compliment you can get. And then Derek, uh, what people don't understand and, and Gil hit it on the, uh, on the nose for a year or a year and a half while you were building these golf courses, you've created this family, a family that you live and breathe and, and eat and, and talk and tell stories and, and reminisce. And this family gets put together to build this unbelievable golf course. And Gil's experienced it. Jim Wagner's experienced it. I've experienced it. It's the family that you build that makes these things so good and so much fun. And you almost don't want the family to be broken apart. And you don't want the project to end. And one of my famous quotes of all time was, walking down the 15th hole, the last hole we grasped at Pacific Dunes, I told Mike Kaiser, I didn't want it to end. I just asked if we could start over. And he, <laughs> and he laughed and said, we'll start over if we use your money. <laughs> <laughs> That's always an option. It's always an option. Yeah. But Gil, you are right. It's that, it's that, that fun factor that it looks like it's been forever. It's the compliments. It's the family you build. And you can't, no disrespect to the people who do drawings. Maybe you build your own families, but a family that builds together and creates this horizontal design. Uh, Gil has a great working relationship with all of his shapers. It's so much fun. You don't want them to end. Yeah. And then, and then there are other times, um, which I agree with you a hundred percent. And there are other times where sort of uh, adversity you know, shows you an awful lot about human nature and sort of bonds everybody together, like building the Olympic golf course. I mean, I will forever be in, uh, Jim and I will forever be indebted to Neil Cameron, Kyle Franz and Ben Hillard. And then, you know, Ben Warren, who came on later that that wasn't a fun build. It was difficult. There were a lot of things that went wrong. There were a lot of things that were frustrating and difficult yet all of those guys. I mean, that's that whole, you know, sort of foxhole mentality. Sure. Know? So for the rest of my life, I'm indebted to those guys uh, for sticking it out. Now we did have a lot of fun and there were a lot of really good, there were or a ton of really good memories, but some jobs just don't go right. And it, you know, then you learn an awful lot. It's, it's great when everybody's happy and everybody's moving in the right direction and, you know, you're all staying in cool places and, you know, you can go to in and out burger for lunch and, you know, oh, yeah. life's oh, easy. Yeah. But it's the ones where you're, you know, you things aren't going great and you're not getting support you need and you need to go eat in a, a, a hospital cafeteria in Rio is where lunch was served every day. And you're kind of like, wait a second, what are we we doing here? But but I, I, I couldn't agree. More. I mean, Jim and I are lucky. We've built a nice team. The guy, the cavemen are, are, are great guys are 
they're fun to be around. And I think that Jim and I have talked an awful lot. We, we'd actually, we want talented, talented guys, but there are some talented guys that are, are frankly divas and we don't want, you know, we'd rather have guys that are easy to get along with and do really good work than, than have a guy who might be uber talented, but it's just like breaks up the whole chemistry in the team because Jim said it. I mean, these guys are literally living together. It's not like, you know, they can go home at the end of the day and, and get away from each other. They're, they're, you know, they eat dinners, you know, we eat lunches together. So it's, yep. it's so important to make sure that that team gels and that everybody is doing, doing the right thing. And Jim and I have always wanted to just felt like we need to build a team that is more cohesive and just the personalities all mesh, et cetera. We don't really, none of us really like to, to deal with sort of confrontation on, on site. We'd much rather that, you know, some, you're going to deal with that with contractors and, and occasionally with the owners. We'd rather not have that be a part of the dynamic of our team. And the scary part of it, Derek, is that on a scorecard, when somebody plays the golf course, they won't know about the trials and tribulations, nor should they. But it is your heart and soul that is poured out on that golf course. And sometimes when you hear critique and, and you hear people uh, demeaning a, a project, you think, man, that was my heart and soul. That was Seamus's heart and soul, Jim Wagner's heart and soul. And sometimes, Gil, it's hard to take, but you know in the end, you know in the end you did the best you can do. Yeah, I think that's um, – I, I just did an interview with – the for a project we did over in France and, and they asked, you know, how would you like to be remembered? And I said, hopefully, hopefully we won't be writing my obituary for a long time, but it's, um, you know, I think it's just that we, we did the best we could with every site. That's it. You know, and that's all you can do, you know, and somebody might've done a better job at that site or somebody might've done a worse job. It doesn't really matter because you're the one who actually built the golf course. And as long as you did, the best you can with that property and you did what was right, what the client needed and you did what you felt was right from a design perspective, you got to walk away, but it, it is hard. And, yeah. and we've been fortunate to design golf courses where, you know, tour events have been held and certainly, you know, the Olympics and have upcoming events on golf courses we've restored. And, and it's not easy to hear criticism coming from what the public perceives as the highest level. Um, from from tour players and you know you'd love to be able to explain yourself but then that just comes off as defensive and it's probably, <laughs> yep. it's probably not anything anybody's gonna they're gonna listen to anyway it's uh, a no-win situation it is so you just have to kind of hope your blood pressure comes back down but it's not it's not because you want to be argumentative or you want to make sure you're right you just want to explain you just want to explain why you did something. And because in mind yeah. and in Jim, I mean, every single, maybe, maybe we overthink our golf courses. It's almost like every single decision gets made is thought through. And so because of that, it makes it more difficult to hear criticism that's based on a, you know, a perception that's not even close to the reality of why you chose to do this in a certain way. But that being said, we're all big boys. We all yep. understand what, what responsibilities we've been given. And anytime you put any work out there in a creative fashion, whether it's 
designer clothes or boots or it's a, a home or a garden or, you know, you're going to be subject to criticism and you just have to accept that as part and parcel of, of what you do. And then at the end of the day, I always tell our guys, you know, remember what we're building is important to a lot of people, but we're building the ground, you know, playing grounds for a game. Yeah. Just a game. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah. I like that. Hey Gil, you, you mentioned a, a mo- just now, in an interview with your your course in France, and you answered the question and said, you know, you wanted to be known for doing the best you can with a particular piece of property. Now, you've had some obviously some really great properties that had a lot to offer. Your course in Nebraska, uh, Caprock Ranch, is is a really interesting and amazing place to work. I'm sure Uhupi was probably one of the best sites you've ever seen. Uh, yes. I go down the list. On the flip side, how do you? gauge your level of satisfaction on a at a place like Ballyshire, which was built in Thailand on a, from what I understand, a completely featureless <laughs> site with like nothing. There's nothing. I mean, how can you possibly do the best on that property because it's not giving you anything to work with? How do you, how do you derive satisfaction from a project like that? Well, I think you know, you do the best with how you can creatively alter that property. You're right. With given the natural characteristics or lack thereof, um, you, you can't maximize the potential of a, of a fairly flat, uh, lifeless site. Same thing in Dubai. Um, you know, we built the golf course there. Uh, I think it's one of those things where you just have to commit to uh, building the golf course for whatever reason we chose to say yes. Um, and just be as creative as you can in solving or, or creating as compelling a golf course as you can, given the resources you have. And, and so that would be either moving a bazillion yards of dirt to try and create believable landforms and make that work, or it would be adapting a concept similar to, you know, McDonald and Rainer's Lido at, at Bally Shear to say, okay, that did that golf course, while we're not replicating it exactly, uh, we're in spirit. That's what sort of drove our decision making. And that golf course didn't have a ton of elevation change to it. It just had a really amazing set of template holes. And and unlike our Bally Shear, it had a great setting right on the Atlantic Ocean. But um, so I think you just try to figure out how do we problem solve for that particular site. But the the question begins right at at, at the start is okay. Do you even take the job? And why do you take the job? And given sort of what parameters you had, um, you know, sometimes you just have to say no um, to a to a site like that. And um, but once you commit, you've got to commit fully, and you've got to really put all the brain power and all the creativity creativity you have into uh, into a, basically a featureless site. Because you talked about inspiration, and and this kind of goes in another direction, but still, it's drawing inspiration. You did some of the coolest work at Wingfoot, Marion, Quaker Ridge, LACC, and and those were some of the the best restoration jobs I've ever seen, works I've ever seen by your by your staff. Were you? Did you allow those to influence you and in your work? more than studying when you went to Cornell to study the lynx lands of Scotland and Ireland? Did you let the restoration work 
kind of give you that inspiration or do you still fall back to where golf became uh, began in Scotland and Ireland? What was your bigger influence? Well, I, I think this almost gets back to the conversation we had earlier where the, on, on maximizing the site and laying out and routing and, and trying to use as creatively as possible natural landforms, the, the year in Great Britain was by far the most influential. It really sort of opened my eyes to, okay, how do you – how do you creatively use this ridge or this roll or this bump or this slope of the fairway? And how did, you know, how did they fit the golf hole to that? When you get back to the features, um, I think we've, we've been fortunate to literally touch, you know, with rakes and shovels in our own hands, the, you know, the putting surfaces on some of the best examples of, of greens that have ever been created. And so when you're, Literally, like yesterday, Jeff Stein and I spent six hours hand-raking expansions and tying in expansions on the 17th green at Baltusrol. You know, that has to rub off on you. you have to, I'm hopeful that you know, we're observant and, and we certainly look at things and we spend time. So I think from a feature standpoint, a lot of that restoration work has been very impactful on, on what Jim and I and, and all the guys that have been involved in those, uh, those restorations have, have experienced there. But as far as the overall layout and routing and, and, and use of natural features, that, that trip to Great Britain was by far more influential. Because I could, I could go back to Rustic Canyon. I played Rustic Canyon, and I was floored by the creativity of that. It was early on in your career. And I could honestly tell you, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought the greens were the most dynamic thing uh, on that golf course. Uh, the routing was good. Uh, the, the the use of the creek was good, but the greens were so influential for me. Was that on purpose, or it just happened that way? I, I think it just happened, and I think that's you know part of um, that dynamic we talk about. The team is we had Jeff Shackelford working with us, and you know he he deserves so much credit for kind of pushing Jim and I in a different direction. We didn't really understand that whole Southern California ethos. We didn't really understand. <clears throat> Um, George Thomas's input and what Jeff was great about is Jim and I, and we talked about earlier, we were just focused on getting in the machines and building greens and building bunkers and working. And Jeff, who doesn't operate machinery, was always on the next hole. And he was walking around and he was kind of looking and going, oh, you know, this would fit in here. Or this would work here or, you know, bunker into this area or, hey, what about if we do, you know, the, the 15th green at Riviera here? Um, okay. You know, that's at least gives us a starting point, Yeah, which is really, as you know, really an important part of, cause when you're on the working on the 13th green, you're on the 13th green. That's correct. You're not thinking about the next hole. No, and, not even. Yeah. If you've got somebody out in front who you trust and respect and, and is really sharp like Jeff, then when you, all of a sudden you finish the 13th green and now you look down the 14th hole instead of going, all right, now what do I do? You've got somebody who's been there going, Hey, here's some ideas and yeah. we reject them or we could accept them, but at least got the whole conversation starting uh, from somebody who'd been, sp- who'd spent days on it as opposed to us. You know, we, we'd obviously laid out the golf hole. So we had ideas, sure, sure. but it's just that in the field thing. So I think part of all that creativity was, you know, a lot of that had to do with uh, Jeff's influence and his input uh, on what Jim and I were building. 
because that third hole is one of my favorite holes at as Rustic Canyon. And who, whoever came up with that idea was brilliant. Correct me if I'm wrong. That is freaking brilliant. Well, thanks. But yeah, a lot of it was, was Jeff talking about the different angles and then kind of how we, you know, again, him being ahead of the field scouting. And then uh, I, I think I shaped that green, but I don't, you know, it was a long time ago. I, I know. <laughs> I, I know. And for, but I think a lot of the, the bones of that were, were kind of set up in on paper ahead of time, but then, uh, when you've got a site like Rustic Canyon, where this, you know, it's a big, basically a big tilted plane from top of the canyon to bottom of the canyon. Yep. But within it are all these really beautiful folds and ripples. And, and there was a, a golf course architect who was very prominent at the time who looked at the property ahead of us and opined that it was way too flat. And when we heard that, you know, and Jeff heard that, it was kind of like, all right, we're going to find all the <laughs> details. We're going to we're going to find that it wasn't flat, and he did. No, no, I think that because a lot of detail out of that. Well, Derek, the, the hole I'm talking about is a, 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 I would say an extra wide fairway, mm-hmm. split by some bunkers. And if you go down the left, you got a beautiful view into the green surface. Correct me if I'm wrong, Gil. Correct. And if you go to the right. You're, you you have a green that's going away from you. So the the, the right option uh, is a little more difficult. The left option, a little more forgiving. And I just thought at the time, what was that, 2004, 2003? That was earlier. It was uh, 99. We, we broke around there in 2000. So flying out there right after September 11th, that was the first flight I took was to go back wow. out to the canyons. Wow. Yeah. And so the creativity of that hole was like, very thoughtful. Uh, you could you could play the whole five, six, seven different ways, and I just thought this is really, really good. And you know, could you do eighteen of them? I don't know, but that one was pretty damn good. Well, thanks, Gil. A, a little while ago, you talked about after Jim asked you how you've—I don't know if the word is you know—matured or if your design style has changed from those earlier days. And you used the word restraint, and I, I almost chuckled to myself because. Having recently seen uh, Streamsong Black and Uhupi <laughs> a few weeks apart from each other, that would be the last <laughs> thing that, word that would come to mind when I think of those golf courses. And I, I know, I think you were using it in a different sense about learning, you know, not to overload holes. You're talking about the greens on Rustic Canyon. Those greens at those two courses are anything but but restrained. How do you know? What gives you the permission or the the idea to take a, a green like the fifth green at a hoopie or the sixth green at a hoopie uh, to, or the, obviously the 13th at a hoopie, you know, or the fifth at, at Streamsong Black? You know, these these masterpieces of contour, like how do you how do you take that and put it into this concept of restraint? How do you reconcile those those two elements? Yeah, so it was um, the two very different projects as it relates to sort of the goals. Um, and, and it gets back to, you know, the clients. Um, when we were asked to, to do the Black Course at Streamsong, we were asked by the client to build a golf course that could host any tournament. So obviously you start off with, okay, it's got to be long, so we find the length and we've got to, you know, figure out a way to make it challenging and, and difficult if, if any tournament in the world were to come to Streamsong. And so Jim Wagner and I talked an awful lot about how do you make golf courses tough in the traditional sense? Okay, rough water, you know, Florida water could be, we could have easily used that, et cetera, et cetera. 
but that would not have been an awful lot of fun. And I know fun's a subjective word, especially as it relates to some people's um, appreciation of the greens that stream song black, but it's, um, we thought, well, that wouldn't be a lot of fun for a resort player, you know, losing golf balls and, and having getting constantly beat up in the wind out there. What could, what else could we do that would make a golf course more playable, hopefully more fun because of the creativity required yet still, require really precise ball striking to get to the right place on a green. And so we thought, well, what if we build some very uh, severe, abrupt, interesting, varied um, surrounds to the greens and thought, all right, well, that's really an interesting concept because, you know, you can, if the average guy can putt or chip and keep the ball on the ground and roll it up and over. And the, you know, the, the good player, if they miss a green and a contour takes it pretty far away from the surrounds, they've got to hit a really, really good chip to get back into the golf hole. So that's where we came the concept of, well, what if you use short grass and contour to provide the difficulty for a golf course, as opposed to what we would traditionally associate with, with difficult where things took a turn either for the better or the worse, depending on what you think of those greens is that when for we, the better. <laughs> thanks. Personally. When we talked with uh, Rusty Mercer, the, the director of grounds down there, who's great. And, and I know Jim knows him very well. I mean, he, you, you couldn't ask for a better partner in trying to figure out how to make a golf course play well and present well. Um, we said, all right, well, we want the surrounds to be shorter than the fairway grass um, so that you could have the option to putt or chip. And he is like, I, I don't, I, we don't have that grass. We just can't get the celebration Bermuda that tight and that low. The only option we have is to take the greens grass, the mini verde and cut it down at greens high all the way through the surrounds. And we thought, well, okay, that's an interesting way to approach it. As long as you never put the pins or the whole locations anywhere outside of what was intended to be putting green, we're cool with that. And so that's how it evolved into in trying to provide all different options. Well, when people first saw that, I don't think they had any idea what they were looking at. They're like, wait a second, that's the entirety of the green. And then when you, we put little dots out there to try to explain and through the rules of golf, you know, you can actually put your, you know, put your coin down if you're inside. Well, that got more confusing, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, we all just said, listen, just play it all as green and, and we'll deal with the whatever controversy or whatever thought is uh, as it relates to it. And it's, it is definitely the most polarizing golf course we've ever built. And some people love it. Some people hate it. And we're just, you know, it's where Jim was talking about earlier. We know why we did that. Nobody's ever really explained to somebody who wants a four putting that, well, would you rather be in, you know, in, have been in a pond and in your pocket or, but the rationale we felt like was sound for why we went and, and, and did this type of thing and why we presented it. And I think the people who approach it in the right mindset or people who've had access to playing golf in, in Great Britain or Ireland or golf in Australia just come away going, man, that was so cool. It reminded me of a Lynx experience. And I got to hit shots that I would never get to hit anywhere else. And, and like I said, Rusty and his gang, they maintain that as Lynxy as any golf course I've ever played in the United States. So I think the combination of all those things restraint definitely wasn't what we were shooting for, but all originally the concept was all those contours would be out, out with the green proper. And I, I personally like the evolution, even though I was resistant to it at first, because I was probably the, the one, um, you know, Jim's <clears throat> Jim's much less, uh, 
you really could care less about what people say or think about what we do. <laughs> Certainly much. He's not nearly as sensitive as I am. So I was kind of thinking at it from the perspective of, well, I, you know, how are people going to perceive this? I know we had we felt like we had all the right ideas, but the perception is reality. Right. Um, but at the end of the day now and, and hearing enough from people whose opinions I respect, um, I, I really think that we ultimately made the right decision. Then you fast forward to a hoopy which is a golf course that was built specifically for match play. There's no writing down scores. There's no, oh, I four putted for an eight on that hole. No, you just lost the hole. Move on. Um, and so what, what Jim and I thought was, okay, what do we do within a golf course to make it more compelling, interesting on a day-to-day basis for match play? And, and what we came up with was that, you know, more of the, the strategic school of architecture is what we all aspire for, too. But, you know, what about the heroic school where the the, cho- the risk and the reward is so severe that in a match play setting, if you're not worried about blowing your entire round, you might ultimately take that risk. You know, you might say, all right, hey, I'm two down. You know, I've got four holes left. I've got to take on that bunker. I've got to take on that carry. I've got to, you know, really start to play more aggressively to get myself back into the match. Conversely, if you're two up with four to play, we give you a conservative way to play around it. And we, all of us who play match play, generally know how that turns out. When you start to protect a lead, you generally lose it. Um, But we wanted to give you those options. And then we thought going further, from a match play perspective, we wanted to create greens, certain greens that have basically holes within a hole that on any given day or any given setup, you could put a hole location that is just so severe and so difficult, but everybody's playing to that location in a match or it could be much more benign. And so we, we felt like given again, the there's no card and pencil mentality, we could build greens or build whole locations that would would reward much more precise play um, as it relates to how a match is, is being carried out and would still give you the opportunity to play in a more conservative line. Yet now when you're on the green, the realities of three putting factor in, even though you've maybe played from A to B to C really conservatively and plotted your way through the hole, you still have to worry about well, no, I, I put myself in a bad location to get at that at where that pin is. So it was just really a, a carrying out of that heroic thought process for match play from T all the way into the contours of the putting green. So uh, it wasn't like we were sitting there going, hey, we just built these, you know, rolling greens at Streamsong. Let's keep going. It was, okay, here's a different mindset for a different project. So in a long and convoluted way, I apologize for that. It sort of tells you how much you really need to pay attention to what your client is looking for. Um, and ultimately they've hired you for a reason. They like your work. They like you, they like, they've seen something that you've done. So you really shouldn't ever have to, um, sort of subjugate your philosophies or, or change what you do in order to take on a job. You, you should be able to, at the end of the day, get, uh, what you believe about golf architecture into the ground but you need to do it within the goals of, of, of what that particular project or that particular client's looking for. I still have, I still have just real quick, Jim, sorry. I have to, yeah. I have to mention this. I still have nightmares about there's a back pin on at 14 at a, at a yeah. match club. It's a, it's a short par four. I guess some guys can maybe take a swat at the green, but it, it tilts, 
it's elevated, the green's elevated, it tilts back to front pretty severely, and it narrows as you go back, and it falls off on all sides. And you can, without ever seeing a bunker or a hazard, you can just be in the wrong place and, and just playing it for the first time if if you haven't seen that pin before and you get up there and you've you've misplayed it you're dead it's just it's a haunt and it's not even the most severely contoured green it's just that pin back there sits up there and it just it's like a siren calling to you to make a mistake and as a members club we love that you know that there are whole locations like that that you know when you you get on the tee you're like okay you know today i'm not playing that you know the upper shell and and um you know, when Jim was talking about um, kind of, you know, how does how do holes have impacts on us from a restoration standpoint? The Fenway. Wing, the wing, Fenway. Yeah, the wing, yeah, it's Fenway 15 and the wings being oh, yeah. kind of the, the side slopes <laughs> on the lower section are, are kind of wing foot, you know, big sort of if you get to the wrong sides of them. And then that upper tier and the way the sort of fall off to the deep bunker and stuff was number eight of Pine Valley. Yeah. So it was kind of an amalgamation of what we felt like were real, a couple of really good short part fours and then a, and a green feature from Wingfoot. And Derek, as he was, as he was describing some of those greens, I kept thinking Fenway, 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 right. Fenway. And if you've never seen Fenway, Derek, you'll see what it's all about. And I got us, you know, and there's no apologies needed. You are creating and you are asking, uh, you are doing something that is unique and different. And remember, we talked about when you go outside of the lines, Derek. Well, Gil and Jim went out, you know, did uh, a creative thing, much like if you saw Fenway or Wingfoot, you'd say, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. And so it's the creativity that goes into it. And I've, uh, Gil, I was telling Derek a, a few episodes ago about how important the owner is to the success of the project. And you just described but the owner, his wishes and the success that came about from it. And I have not seen a hoopie, but I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, I think part of, Jim, what you just said is right. I remember in in younger days getting started and going out and just, you know, having had the experience of working for Tom. Um, I, I wondered why the, the established architects of that time, and I'm not, I won't name names, but I just, you know, why didn't they really push the envelope? Why were a lot of the guys who were at the forefront of the business just sort of doing very safe kind of similar successful projects over and over again. And here comes Tom and, and to, you know, Bill and Ben and they're pushing the envelope and they're really kind of trying to stretch the bounds of what golf architecture should be. And I always thought, well, if we ever get to a point in, in, in my career and our career, Jim and I, you know, where we can do it, not recklessly, obviously you don't want to build something that's going to, you know, an owner's going to, lose his ass on you want to make sure that you're 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 doing the right thing but if we ever got to that position i'd want to be the guys that were put trying to push the envelope it's like hey let's let's try and do this let's try and move the ball george thomas used to say you know he wrote in his book he said there will be a time in golf architecture when practitioners of this craft will be pushing will be doing things that i couldn't in my wildest dreams think of and unfortunately he was dead wrong I mean, yeah. basically, he he was one of the guys who pushed things, and we're still not pushing beyond what, what he advocated for. And I, if given the right set of circumstances and the right owner, and and the right setup, I think it's incumbent on some of us who've gotten to a certain point in our careers that that we try 
to to advance things and do things a little bit more creatively. And so, yeah. And, and Garrick, there's only so many black and white movies you can go see, and eventually, <laughs> eventually, they got to be something different. And I'm looking forward to seeing a hoopy and. I know the property that Gil's working on in Nebraska, and, and it's going to be off the charts. So the chance to do something different, the chance to be something more than just a black and white movie, uh, it's just part of the, the creation. And, you know, Gil, my my shelves are littered with golf architects books, and my, my desk is covered with golf architects books. And they talk about strategy, and they talk about the incentive and they talk about, you know, what you should do, but there's no book anywhere that I know of, you might know of one that talks about how to shape that creativity. And that's what you are getting to do. You and Jim are getting to do. And how fun is that? It's a blast. I mean, it is the most fun part of the job. And I think, you know, part of what comes with experience over time is the ability to shape different features. And, and you'll get this right away as soon as I say it. It's, it's getting the experience to figure out what slopes actually work, what slopes function the way you want to. You know, it's easy to get things too severe. It's easy to get things too flat. It's just that Goldilocks. What slope here is going to make the ball do exactly what we're hoping it will do without it bouncing and kicking all the way through the back of the green or landing with a thud and not moving. And that's all about feel and experience. It's, it's about time in the seat and observing and kind of trying to create that because you can't, you know, if you do shape it in the dirt or the sand, if we're lucky in the sand, you, you can't hit that shot because the ball's just going to hit the ground and stop. It's going to yeah. land in the dirt and just not move. So it's, it's learning that type of experience. And I think that's part of, you know, Derek, getting back to the whole restraint thing. It's, it's, it's enough experience and enough maturity to say this slope is going to do that. Whereas I think when you're younger, you always think, eh, it probably needs to be steeper. It probably needs to be a little bit more severe. And frequently you guess wrong on that. And when you guess wrong on it, then you got a problem. Right. And the thing about, building and creating and shaping and and floating out with the sampro the final props of the greens is that you could feel what one and two percent are and you could feel what four and five percent are and i've got off many a time off a green and 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 i've shot it or i've asked somebody to shoot it for me just to be sure and it and and i know what two percent and three percent and four percent feels like i know jim and gil do too so you knew you know how they translate to the next shelf or to the next part of the green and that is the fun part of creativity and the transition and knowing what one and two and three percent feels like yeah you're you're a hundred percent right i mean our guys will look at jim and i now and they'll be like you want to check that green i'm like yeah we probably should but i think it's good and they'll say, what do you mean? And I say, it just feels right. It just yeah. it feels right. And the other thing that the couple of times I've been fooled is when you've got big, much bigger contours directly adjacent to a green. So, I mean, it would be, you know, like um, 13 at, at Pack Dunes where you got that big dune there and you yeah. know, this big cliff and your eye is telling you, oh, my God, we've got this massive elevation here. And and it might throw your eye off as to which way it's actually going. Those are the only times I've ever been fooled is when you've got a really big landform 
<clears throat> that I think is influencing your feel, even though you know in your bones it's doing this. But there have been a couple of greens that I've thought, I swear to God, we're going from back to front. And I could often <laughs> shot them, and they're going the opposite direction. I'm like, oh, man, that's not that's not very good. But thankfully, that's infrequent. But the guys just shake their heads when and I'm sure they do it to you as well. Like, yeah, yeah. I think it's good. And then they check it, and you're like, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a and, and you don't and you don't mean to smirk, but you're smirking all the way, <laughs> all the way to go get some burgers for lunch. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and see, Derek, I learned that at San Francisco Golf Club, and I learned that uh, work and seeing some Maxwell golf courses that, you know, it looks like it's falling away, but it's the ground that's falling away, and, and the senses tend to mess with you a little bit. And that's what I've learned working on old golf courses, looking at inside rolls of Maxwell, looking at tilling half greens. They look like they're falling one way, but they're really falling the other. And when you learn to observe and you learn to know what you're looking at, as Rod Whitman would say, you know when to look and, and how to look, that's what you learn from hanging out at Wingfoot, Quaker Ridge, and Fenway, and that whole neighborhood up there where where Gil has, and Jim has done some of their best work. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where we people say, "Well, what do you look for when you play these old golf courses?" And and I always try to look at how they built it. It's like, all right, that green's obviously artificial. Where did that dirt come from? You yeah, know, look around and see if you can tell where they borrowed to create that or they dug that bunker to build this and that. And I, I find that's very instructive to, to me to sort of understand how they manage dirt because they, you know, one of the things that, that I'm most proud of when it comes to, to running machinery is, you know, people say, all right, you're, you're a good shaper. You can do this. That. But it's managing dirt is, yes. is an art form in and of itself because you're yes. basically – you can waste an awful lot of time if you're moving dirt in the wrong direction. Um, but if you can figure out how to most efficiently build, you know, I've got to build the back of the green up three feet. All right, where do I borrow that dirt from? Where does it come from? How do I move it? So even though I'm moving dirt, I'm still shaping at the same time. Yeah. That's a critical component to what we do. And if you can do that well, then you can build, you can obviously hopefully build from a creative standpoint, but you can build it creatively and efficiently. You know, the and guys not only time not a, all over the world and then also, right. well, why'd you do that? Um, right. That's what I thought was best. I think that's really an important, important uh, skill to be able to do. And on, on top of that, it not only uh, you to be able to cut and fill in place is that it looks more natural when you do cut and fill in place because when you start to import soil on top of topography, it looks like a fill. And Derek, unfortunately, the 60s and 70s and some of the 80s brought us that import of fill that looks on that looks artificial. Right. And Gil nailed it when you when you create it in the cut and fill sense on site. It looks more natural. Yeah, and that's what the old guys had to do because they couldn't you know haul it from the other side of the property or dig a lake and you know bring it all the way across. They had to kind of scrape and cut and fill in place as, or as in as close proximity as possible to create their features. And I just always find that very instructive and, and fascinating to kind of try and figure that out. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of times you just scratch your head and that's how good those guys were. They didn't how good they were. create clues behind us to, Oh, yeah. you know, it, was, it was done gracefully and, and artistically as opposed to sort of ham handedly. And Gil is right. You were looking to, you're looking to see how they did that and how 
with with uh, a horse and a buggy and a scraper, a pan scraper that carried maybe a, a half a cubic yard of, at most. Yet they were so efficient in doing that that God, if we could just create that in the modern era, how much better the golf courses would be. Agreed. Hey, Gil, I have a you, you've been everywhere. I mean, you've been everywhere. And I know we've taken some of your time this morning. We appreciate it. This has been fun. But you've been everywhere. Is there somewhere left to go and some idea left? Or are there millions of ideas left and millions of places to go for you and Jim and, and your staff to create even more interesting golf courses? Well, I think, you know, we've been. Um, I haven't been to New Zealand. Um, I hear wonderful things about Tahiti. I mean, everybody's just gushing with, with praise for that. So I'd love to get to see that. I haven't been to Tasmania, so I need to go see all the fine work that you guys did down there and, and the lost farms with Bill and Ben. Um, so there's some places around the, the edges I haven't gotten to yet, which I, w- I would love to do. Um, one of the things, you know, working at Le Bord in, in France, we, we spent a lot of time looking at Tom Simpson's work at, at Morfontaine and Chantilly and Fontainebleau wow. and really opened up my eyes to, I had been there, but it was, you know, a hundred years ago and I'd forgotten. And, you know, we had very gracious uh, French hosts at these clubs allowed us to come and study and look. And we took a lot of our ideas from our, what we thought of Simpson and obviously his books have always been, and his sketches have been favorites of mine. I mean, I've got, very fortunate to have one of his sketches i'm looking at it right now hanging on my wall and it's you know when when you said i can draw well when you look at that i feel like i do stick compared <laughs> to that um you got crayons so, oh yeah, it's unbelievable <laughs> but anyway getting to do a deep dive on on simpson and, and kind of a heathland setting uh was really an exciting prospect for us so i'm sure there'll be there'll be things that will hopefully continue to inspire i know there will be things that continue to inspire including a lot of the great modern work that's getting done right now and, and seeing those types of things and you know the the key to what we do that makes us makes everything wonderful is that we get to move from site to site and every site is different and every setting is different. And you know, people say, well, you haven't had a lot of downtime. And I, and I said, yeah, we're lucky. We're really lucky that we've been able to move from job to job. So how do you reset? I said, every site resets you. Yeah. Every site Agreed. resets you because it's going to give you different soil conditions, different, you know, everything about that site is unique. And that's what makes golf courses so wonderful. And the playing grounds that we, we get to call ours, you know, every single golf course is completely different. Um, tennis or basketball you know that sort of thing so if we allow that the sort of the fundamental excitement about every new site and the fundamental challenges and opportunities that come with every new site to re-energize us i don't know why you just wouldn't want to keep going from project to project to project because we just we love it we absolutely hit over hills love what we do and and so i think if you know, those types of opportunities, those types of challenges, those types of revelations of getting to see new places, um, I think will continue f- to hopefully forever inspire us. You know, I've talked about the golden age being uh, the most critical part of, of the evolution of golf in America. Are we going through the new golden age of design? I'd like to think so. I mean, you know, history has got a long lens. So, we'll, you know, unfortunately, we'll probably be gone before that you know, verdict is rendered. Um, but I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that, you know, the, right now there has been a, 
you know, and whether it's right now, meaning the last 15, 20 years or right now, meaning right now, um, I think there's been a resurgence and a new effort on um, emphasis on golf being first and foremost. Yeah. What is important? You know, and I think Mike Kaiser, Dick Young's cap, um, guys like that really got everybody refocused. Um, you know, Rich Mack at, at Streamsong. There are, there are guys out there, Tom Passion, Bob Dittman at Pinehurst are doing. You know, there's these people who have decided and, and, and put their money where their mouths are that, you know, we need to fo- focus first and foremost on creating great golf. And people will come and they will visit and they will enjoy that. And then they, that will spur more development and more opportunities to do that. And I think that that's where we are right now. And, and I'm thankful that, you know, publications and, and rankings for whatever they're worth are sort of focused on this new emphasis on golf first and golf foremost facilities. Um, and, and, you know, golf in the golden age. They worked on, you know, people say, well, they had better properties. Well, it's hard to say that anybody ever had a better piece of property than the Sheep Ranch. And Bill and Ben, I'm sure, have done an amazing job with oh, man. around. And, and the rare, did, you know, tell me if Mackenzie would have said, yeah, no, I don't think Sandhills is good enough. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to work there. <laughs> they had some really good pieces of property, but, you know, there's some really great stuff being built now. And I, I, and I'd like to think that the thought process and the care and the attention and the methodology of, of how we're building these things with a softer footprint on the landscape, that all of that harkens back to, and I, and I, I didn't know Pete Dye very well. I met him a couple of times, had a great opportunity to, to play golf with him once or twice, but you knew the man and you understood. And, and what we're hearing an awful lot about that. I don't think I truly appreciated was that Pete was the first one to start kind of hearkening back to these classic age architectural principles Maybe his presentation wasn't classic age, although there were remnants of it, certainly. But all of his angles and strategies and thoughts and setups were all basically born in in the classic age of architecture. So I think he was probably the one who, even though we maybe didn't realize it, uh, he was putting that out there in front for all of us to see. And maybe we were too focused on railroad ties and island greens and and not focused enough on the nuances and the brilliance and the genius of 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 his reintroducing these great classic and and there's there's no it's no coincidence and i believe this wholeheartedly that the two you know greatest proponents of 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 getting us to this golden age of golf architecture bill core and tom doak and for those guys to have come from directly from p is, is no coincidence. So I, I'd like to think that when, when people look back on this era, that they will say it's the new golden age. But like I said, unfortunately, unless we live to be really old, we, we may not know that we're working in that golden age right now. And, you know, when when we're, when I was working with Pete and, and Pete would say, just add a little here and, and jazz it up here and 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 just put a little touch here and, and and those little quips and quotes and and the things that and when Pete wanted me to shut up he'd tell me to hold the phone you know those were all the things that I was learning about being creative in the land and and don't don't be afraid to be too creative and you're right he was the genius I think that started the the flow but I often, I, I'm often asked, Gil, and and I believe it in my heart that from the Sand Hills on, 
began the new age of of the golden age, and there's nothing wrong with 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 uh, enjoying what the golden age gave us. But man, there's got to be some some uh, positive that's coming out of what's what's being built today. Yeah, I agree. I, I certainly think that we've you know golf architecture has turned. I think the appreciation for golf architecture has obviously become its own. <laughs> I don't say cottage industry, but there's certainly a great fascination with with golf architecture, which I think is a is a great thing. It really is is good, and you know, an appreciation and a love for the the old guys and what they did, and then hopefully an appreciation for a lot of uh, what us modern practitioners are doing. So I, I think it's that all ties together quite nicely. Well, well you know, I th- it, guys, I just want to add my two cents to this. Yeah, um, please. The I, I hear that term "second golden age" quite a lot, and there's definitely no doubt that the quality of work being done in the last 20, 25 years at the highest level, what you guys have done and, and your contemporaries have done is extraordinary and it will stand the test of time and it's being rewarded by interest from the public and whatever kind of other accolades can be thrown on top. I think to me, to me, a golden age is when there are a series of new discoveries, which is what the 19 teens and twenties were. That's when intellectuals and, and architects and designers were really developing new concepts and kind of like laying the foundation, the instruction manual, if you were for strategy and shaping and the possibilities of golf, they took it from one place and moved it to another. I'm not sure that that we've moved it to another place. We've rediscovered that. And it was necessary to 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 give those tenants life again, because they'd been ignored. I think the real measure through time is if is if what if there's maybe somebody, Gil, that's coming up behind you, a generation that can take all of the, the, the things that you've done to rescue golf architecture and to represent it and take that and bring it from the coast of Oregon, from the coast of Nova Scotia, from Tasmania, from Tarahiti, and bring it into urban centers and introduce it to a type of golfer who often doesn't get to experience that. Because a lot of the greatest work is private it's far away and it's expensive. And Jim, I know you and I have had this conversation before. I think that's where the the real revolution in golf architecture will come is when we start taking what you guys have done, which is rediscovery, neoclassicism, and bring it to a place where I can take my kid to go play it. We can go and walk nine holes and get that same level of architectural experience, that same fascination, that, that same level of study and interest. And it's just down the street. And I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I think that's when we'll really know that this era has achieved golf's greatest potential. Yeah, I mean, we are, we're really close, and we've been really close now for, Jim and I were looking at this the other day, for, it seems like, I think it's 11 years now, uh, to getting ready to, to redo Cobbs Creek. Right, um, there you go, that's so perfect. In, in Philadelphia, and I think given the the roster of talent that was involved in that, I mean, it's U Wilson design, but, you know, Crump, Tillinghast, the whole Philadelphia school of architecture, Thomas, they were all out there pitching ideas. And, and I think if we can do that really was, was aside from Marion probably regarded as the best golf course in Philadelphia, not just public or private. I mean, it was seriously good golf course. And if we can get that back and, and work to that, to that degree, I, I I think there's the potential. I know what Will Smith and the Outpost Foundation is doing with the stuff in, in Washington, D.C. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, to turn the, the page. God only knows what this economy is going to look like after the, the pandemic, but I'm hopeful that there is now 
at least some serious attention being paid to uh, to resurrecting what were at one point in time seriously good pieces of golf course architecture that have been allowed to decay over over a long period of time and we can do that in a way that certainly makes it affordable for the residents to, to experience that in, in, in a function. I mean, Cops Creek is also going to have like a cradle type part three golf course associated with it. So we're, we're hopeful that will be, will fit in with, with what you're talking about. And, and Jim Wagner, who's you know born and raised in Philadelphia, I, I, I'm this is my adopted hometown, but he's, um, he's gone after this with a zeal and an energy, which is great. And I know the two of you know and understand and appreciate, you know, Jim's contributions to the work that, that we do. I get to, absolutely. I get to shake hands and kiss babies and do the, do the TV stuff and all that. But without Jim, I mean, there's none of this, none of the creative, none of this happens. So I'm really excited to see him excited about, you know, the opportunity to do something very special in, in his hometown. And hopefully Derek, it, it, is maybe one of hopefully many projects that that introduces that concept that you just talked about. That's right. That's my that's my soapbox, and I'm going to keep standing on it and screaming Good. for it until I see it. <laughs> Cobbs, it Cobbs Creek would be a great place to start. But Gil said it. Uh, Gil said it in so many words. Uh, eight or nine years. It's it would be hard for me, Derek. And I'm not saying I'm I'm not afraid of it, but it would be much harder for me to go into any urban center and find a golf course that is down and out and and has lost its way and convince a municipality to believe in me, believe in the team that I brought with me, to resurrect and create architecture to the highest level for the what you say the public golfer in the urban center, it's hard to convince a municipality. If I knew the 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 handbook to do it, I would be in every urban center in America because there's a bunch of pieces of property that could use that. The problem is there's no one who is ready to look outside that box the way Gil, I, Jim Wagner, uh, and others believe that could be done, uh, including Derek Duncan. Yeah, I think the the thing we've had, which again you're right, navigating through city council and through city politics is it's taken a long, long time. But we've got we're lucky the McGuire Foundation, which is a significant um, philanthropic organization here in Philadelphia, has basically shepherded this whole thing, and they've been in charge of raising money and and working through, and eventually the. The path that we've found, which works, is that they've been granted a lease, uh, 99 years to operate, and be, and they're raising the money privately uh, through you know through donations from citizens and through uh, philanthropic groups to to raise the money to do the work and then ultimately to operate and 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 sub subsidize you know if the operation budget doesn't cover all of the expenses so it's it's got to be a public private partnership and you've got to find that entity within that particular city that has such great civic pride that understands the important role that golf can bring to revitalizing you sort of the east lake model uh revitalizing neighborhoods providing opportunities for employment for opportunities to learn a game that's you know will hopefully help people advance in their lives so it's you've got it. It's that perfect storm. You've got to find all these groups to come together at the right point in time. And then they have to be patient, they have to be able to willingly muck their way through the slog that is going to be dealing with with city politics. And, and we're thankful that, you know, 
uh, Mike Serba and Joe Bausch got the ball started with all their research on, on, on Cobbs Creek and the Cobbs Creek foundation, the McGuire foundation, you know, it's, Hopefully it will be the textbook. We're not quite there yet, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to provide, it, provide at least some a roadmap that worked in Philadelphia. Because Derek, these don't things these golf courses don't have to cost twelve and fifteen and twenty million. They could be done for much cheaper. Absolutely, you just you just got to get out of the way. Yeah. Well. Th- Cobb's Creek. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that. That could be a model. The more we talk about it the more ears hopefully we can get on it. And that's, that's how these things get, get moving in one direction. Absolutely. Gil, once again, Jim said it before, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're busy. I was a real treat for us. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I really, I loved uh, the, the podcast that Jim did with you, you Derek, I was probably a couple of years ago now. And I had to promise my family I wouldn't curse near as much. Um, <laughs> not nearly as funny as Jim. But uh, hopefully, he's the hopefully only, we all enjoyed it. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's the only person that ever I had to beep something out. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a he's a, such a blast to be around. I I, I went and I walked a uh, burning tree over in Washington D.C. Uh, with Jim Wagner. I hung around with him for a little bit, and the, I could see his energy. He was like a, a nuclear reactor moving around the fairway, and uh, it's infectious. I see why Gil likes being around Jim. Uh, everybody needs a Jim Wagner. Yeah, I'm, I'm super lucky. Yeah, like I said before, it's it's been one of the great blessings of my life to have had Jim. You know, to be able to work side by side with him for 25 years now, going, you know, continuing on. It's been that's cool. It's really been it's been one of the best things of my life for sure. Well, that's cool. Thank you for your time. And Gil, you know, I'd buy you virtual lunch and, and <laughs> thank you. But uh, I know that we've we've taken a lot of time, but it's been a blast. When I'm in Denver next, I'll look you up. We'll go to uh, Colonel Mustard's. You know, <laughs> spot right next to DU. Oh yeah, it's still there. <laughs> Some oh, good yeah. fries and a good old hot dog. Oh, I love it. Thank you, Gil. All right, guys, take care. Wow, Jim, that was a treat. I mean. You- Gil Hans obviously is one of the most well-spoken and intelligent, uh, smart guys in the in the entire business. There's a reason why why he's on Fox Television. There's a reason why he gets so many great jobs. I mean, he's he's a very interesting guy, very well-spoken guy, very polite guy too. One thing I wanted to mention though, we kind of ended the, our talk on a note about. And I, I hope I didn't sour our whole conversation by talking about how uh, all the great work that, that you and, and Gil and everybody else is doing is, you know, needs to be brought back home so so everybody can get a taste of it. It's not your fault necessarily. But one course, I didn't bring this up because I didn't feel like like maybe Gil was in a position where he could he could really talk about it because it's, it's kind of into the future. But there's a golf course called West Palm Beach Golf Course, obviously in West Palm Beach, Florida an old Dick Wilson design, one of his first, which is on a really spectacular core golf site right in the middle of town. It's been closed for two years. And now the PG recently, the PGA of America has stepped in and is going to try to revive that golf course and maybe do some kind of like public private option that as we were speaking about. And if that goes forward, Gil is the first in line uh, to get a shot at, at either restoring that golf course back to uh, the Dick Wilson version, putting it back together, or maybe even creating a whole new golf course on top of that really spectacular Sandy site, whichever, I'm not sure which way it's going to go, but that is something. If that happens, that'll be a great example of getting architecture from Gil Hans 
right in the middle of, of a high density urban area, which will be very accessible to the people in South Florida to play in it. It'll be it'll be a destination course to uh, really whoever gets a, a shot at redoing that course if they can get over all these legal uh, municipality hurdles and financing hurdles that seem to be so difficult to to elevate across. You know, Derek, I, I, it wasn't a you said it was a downer, but it wasn't a downer. Uh, Of course, we could talk to Gil uh, all day long. I could have talked to Gil all day long. But your point about uh, urban centers and golf courses and municipalities and golf courses and what they should do, open space. You know, Derek, good golf course architecture is not expensive. It just isn't expensive. You just got to let the golf course designer architect build and be creative and do things that uh, don't seem to be the norm of what was there. You know, people people tend to gravitate, well, this golf course has been here for 50 years. Well, it, this golf course that was here for 50, 100 years is now closed. Let somebody rethink it. Let Gil, if he has chosen to do that, rethink him and his team, Jim Wagner, rethink what good golf course architecture can be put on that ground. It's not expensive. You just have to try to relive it, rebirth it, re-give it that chance. And Derek, I'm with you. Every urban center we could go and and we can re-imagine what these golf courses, some of them, that are kind of grown old and tired and and need a new irrigation system or a new drainage system. Because think about all the municipalities that were built in the 50s and 60s for the masses. Why can't we just go back and revisit it and bring some good golf course architecture to the urban cities? I think it could be done, Derek. Stay on it, will you? I'm going to stay on it. I'm going to stay on well, You know, that's a huge topic, and, and I don't think we'll we'll maybe save that for another another discussion is is how, how have we gotten to this place where it's so hard to convince a, a local government, a county, a state, or, or you know, any, anybody with the purse strings that golf is a it's a healthy thing. It's it's a great investment for the people of your community. It's it's outdoors. It's it's open space. It preserves open space. It can be a, a nature habitat. People go there and they get exercise. They 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 have relationships and conversations. They're away from their screens. Those are all great things. That if you say you, go, you can go to a park and do that, you know that's great investment for for places. You know, we're always trying to grab back green space. But if you put the word golf course on it, now all of a sudden you've you've got people that are against it. So as you said, there was a time in American golf history where people the majority of people were excited to have a new golf course in their town. They wanted that. That was a a, a utility provided to them. And we've gotten away from that. And and then to touch back on your on really what your point was, Golf courses obviously have got had gotten way too expensive to build. There's a way to do them for a low cost, as as you would know much much better than I would. But there's so much things you know line items that are padded in there, and 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 the way municipalities work, and and you have to get requests for proposals and 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 a fair bidding and and everything. It's like everybody wants a, a cut of the pie. So there there are certain things that are baked into the process that. Are are very difficult to get past when you're talking about municipal golf, but it can be done. You just need smart people running the ship. You need good clients, and that client 
whatever that town or municipality is that they have to be a, a good client who really wants to get it done. Like, like you had a common ground. A great example of, of common ground, four and a half million to build it, uh, doing it in conjunction with the Colorado golf association and, uh, the Lowry redevelopments area, uh, a former air force base, creative, fun, enjoyable, out walking all the golf open, you want to all the golf you want open space uh, what is wrong with open space and what is wrong with charging somebody a, a, a nominal fee not not you know 150 200 300 400 dollars for a municipal golf course but a nominal fee 35 40 dollars to go out and walk as Alistair mckenzie said if more people walk they called in the good doctor, Derek. Uh, the good doctor, Alistair McKenzie, said if more people walked and played golf courses, they'd spend less time in my doctor's office. So, <laughs> yeah, still true. What, what, what is wrong with that? Open space. And I just think that we just have to revisit it. Uh, give some people like Gil Hands a chance, like, he, uh, like you said at, at West Palm Beach. Give them a chance to reimagine, and uh, the, the, the benefits will reap themselves uh, as long as it doesn't cost too much to build. As long as we don't have uh, 150 bunkers out there with $100 uh, a ton sand in them. Good golf, a good walk enjoyable good set of greens uh, a scattering of bunkers like like don mahaffey said to us in our first podcast a scattering of bunkers and let's go play let's go have fun let's get the trolley out let's put the bag on our shoulder let's have a caddy walk with us there's nothing wrong with that right you know i think back to what we spoke about in our intro and about how gill is is so prominent right now and the jobs he's getting and he's really in demand Jim, what do you think is is one of Gil's greatest strengths? What what's what's propelling him to this on to this hot streak that he's on? Why are why is the work so good? So I know I don't know if you can it's like asking why, you know, what what made, you know, Manet such a great painter. It's hard to say, but what do you what do you admire about what what he does and what do you think makes that that organization that he's operating work so well? You know, Derek, I'm, I'm going to go hide in the bushes uh, outside the fence and start taking notes and hanging around Gil Hand's design golf courses. <laughs> but, but, I'm just going to go uh, play them. <laughs> good. I'm going to go learn. You're going to go play. But, you know, I, I know what they're doing and they're doing it well. Here's one word, one word for Gil Hand's why he has uh, garnered that attention. Communicator. He can talk and communicate with people and describe his thoughts and and he can describe what he's thinking. And his partner, Jim Wagner, they could go out there and create their communicators. They're able they don't pretend to be aloof and and, and to, to be something more than what they do and what they are. They love being outside. They love creating golf courses that are challenging, and they communicate that to the developers. And all the developer wants is to know what's going on. And if you're able to communicate, as you said, Gil handles himself very well. You know, he's on Fox Sports. He's talking about golf course architecture. If you can communicate, if you could keep that open line, be able to listen as well as to respond with, with thoughtfulness 
That's all you need. And, and, and if you're good at that, I think Gil is a good communicator. Uh, it showed in, in, in the discussion with him. Uh, uh, success will come your way. Uh, just communicate. There's also something to be said for a compiling a great team around yourself, right? And that's one of the hallmarks of some of the greatest modern architecture, uh, especially as I call you guys, you know, the design build guys. I don't, everybody calls you that, but but that's kind of the, the methodology. Yeah, I didn't make yes. that up, by the way. <laughs> but but it's kind of something that that came from Pete Dye, really, but but other people practice it too. And it's, but it's really about kind of releasing, you know, not having the, the leader of the group not be the, not be the, the ultimate end all be all, you know, he's, he's a collab. There's a level of collaboration amongst the team that, you know, and, and look, people who build it the other way and, and, and hire a contracting firm and, and hand them papers can, can be just as creative and dynamic and the product can be just as good. But it is interesting that we're in this moment right now where some of the most, the really the most interesting work on the most interesting side, sites is being carried out by teams of people. And Gil said it in the conversation. He said, you know, I, I don't use a, a big set of plans. Others do. He didn't begrudge them. He didn't look down on them. He just said, that's not the way I do it. And when you think about good teams, you listen to Gil during that whole conversation, he, and he talked about others. And Mackenzie had Robert Hunter and Alex Russell and Mick Morcom and F- John Fleming and, and Perry Maxwell had his son press and the Wood Brothers and, and Allison uh, worked with Colt and McKenzie. And, and it goes on and on and on. It's that team of people that that Ben and Bill always talk about their team that they work with. And when you develop that team and and and. You talk horizontally. I really liked how you brought that out about being horizontal in the design. It's not, you know, straight north or straight south. It's horizontal, including all people. When you have that, good architecture, as I said, is not expensive, but it becomes more creative. And and that is the team that you're talking about. And Gil spent the time talking about his team and he, again, he did not begrudge people who built from plans because there are golf courses that are, there are good golf courses out there that are built from a set of plans. But Gil chooses not to do that. And, and I just listening to him, you know, one of the things that caught me by surprise what? when when he talked about the cooling off period, yeah. that, yeah. that was, what did you take from that? I, um, uh, like a, a certain level of, well, it's the luxury of time for one. I mean, you've got to have great clients that allow you the ability to walk away. You know that it, yeah. you're not on a schedule. You're not being driven. Even though he talked about sometimes that does happen. You've got the the uh, the irrigation guys coming up behind you or something. Sure, but but sure. if you if you have good clients and you work the way you do, you that luxury of being able to walk away and let it cool off. And then you can come back at it for, with a fresh perspective. I mean, I think I think anybody that's good for for anybody and anything that they do artistically is to be able to have that luxury to be able to do that. And so, so time, but also discipline, right? I mean, it takes, it it takes a lot of confidence and and discipline to know that it's not right. The first what you know, whatever you're looking at it is not correct and not to rush through it. And you know what? Uh, I'm wondering if you as a writer, uh, uh, do you think about uh, a cooling off period as you're writing? For sure. I, um, I've talked to other writers about this too. And the worst thing you can do is even if you've got a deadline is 
editing it, finishing it, and then sending it. You always want to sleep on it. If you can ever sleep on it, do it, you know, because because you'll think of something later that you wish if you had just a little more time. So it's it's better to be, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but it's better to be a little bit late than a little too early. Yeah, because when he said cooling off period, one of the uh, jokes that uh, Bill Coor, he he calls me the pink eraser, the big pink eraser. (laughs) (laughs) And I started laughing because I'm not afraid to erase it. If it doesn't look right, I'm not afraid to erase it. And I say that figuratively. I erase it with an excavator bucket or I have one of the shapers erase it or or get on the machine and, 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 and start over. And I thought that the, the way that that Jim uh, had approached Gil uh, on a few of the sites in Rio and, and other places about let's just let's just hold off. They were aware of the timeline, the construction timeline, the irrigation, the drainage, the, the grassing that's coming right behind them. But as you said, it was a little luxury of 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 just that moment to to, to sleep on it, to think about it, cooling off period. And you know, I'm not afraid to erase it and and start over. I thought that was a very interesting way that they have that dynamic between them and the shapers. Let's let's sit on it for a while. And, you know, I never thought about a cooling off period. Pete used to always tell me, let's play with it a while. Mm-hmm. He used to say, Jim, let's just let's just keep playing with it for a while. So I think maybe it's the same thing. But I that caught me by surprise when he when Gil said that him and Jim have this cooling off period. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. You know, Jim, I think the last thing that I was that was on my mind uh, as I was listening to mostly you and Gil talk, but I, I had a thought. And, <laughs> Sorry. No, but I Sorry, know, look, I, that was very enjoyable for me. Um, I was thinking about, you know, th- there was some discussion about clients. And while you guys were talking, I flashed back to our, our talk with Thad Layton. And he told, Thad told this great story about being on site and, and he found this, they were renovating a golf course, remodeling it. And they found this one really cool area in front of a green and they were kind of pushing the envelope and they turned it into this punch bowl feature that, that Thad was really proud about. And the client didn't like it. And you'll remember Thad you know, oh, yeah. thought about when, so Arnold Palmer came to visit and he kind of knew what Palmer was going to do, but Palmer walked out and looked at it and looked at the client, looked at that and just shook his head. And it's like, no, that's going too far. Now, when when I thought of that, I, I thought, well, there's something interesting here about the the clients that 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 you've worked with, the Mike Kaisers that Gil has worked with, and Arnold Palmer, and I think a lot of architects of his generation. I think they might have thought like their clients. I think they might have had more in common with their clients. They had these big multi-operational businesses. Palmer certainly did. Palmer was a businessman. He was he was a, a sponsor. He had all kinds of different ventures. Architecture was just one thing. He what he could have been somebody else's client for something. A lot of the architects of that period had big firms with with a lot of staff. They were businessmen. They had to run an organization. It had to be structural. It occurs to me that there's a period in time where where architects and architectural firms are relating more to the client than they are to the the site, the landform, the ground, or to a or to an architectural idea. And what's happened, I think, recently, and Gil's a great example of this, and he touched on this, is is he comes in, Tom Doak comes in, uh, David McClay Kidd comes into the game, and they're young and they've got ideas and they've got things that they want to do in architecture. They're not just out there, you know, for the business. So they're the ones that can really take architecture 
and recapture all those missing elements. They can go back in time. They can channel the, the George Thomases and the Alistair McKinsey's. They can recreate this lost form of architecture because they, they have that in them. They're not thinking like their clients, in other words. And I think that's what we've gotten, and that's allowed us to break into this period that we're in now, which I call neoclassicism, and create these these great things. And we still have, you still need great clients. You still need the Mike Kaisers and, and uh, the Rick Kays of the world to give you these sites. But it's, it's architecture being approached for the sake of art and for the sake of creativity and for the sake of a vision versus as a, uh, as a product, which probably happened a lot in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s when the big firms we're working really sympathetically with the client. I don't want to say that what you guys do, you're not sympathetic to the client. It's teamwork for sure. But it takes that kind of youthful architectural vision, that passion to do something specific to kind of create an environment that's different from the previous one. Does that make any sense? I'm you rambling. Spot, no, no, no. You're <laughs> spot on. You're spot on about Mr. Palmer communicating to the client and shaking his head at that. <laughs> Poor Thad. Yeah, he, he, he's all bummed out. But, but you're right about the, the communicators and, and and being able to work with the clients. You think we talked a little bit about Kyle Franz, all right? We talked a little bit about his exuberance, his 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 energy. You think I'm going to stop him from being creative? No chance. No chance. I'm 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 acting as the owner. Right. I'm acting as the owner. I'm, I'm working with with uh, the talented shapers, the, the Joe Hancocks, the the, uh, the you name it, you name it. Jonathan Reisters, you name it. Exuberance and energy and it's infectious and you want them to succeed and you want to see what they produce. And with you, with, as long as you're within that budget, that's exactly what you were talking about. The, the new, the neoclassic that, that are coming back and, and they're bringing these thoughts with them and they're excitable and they get you excited because we're all trying to recapture, as Darwin said, the spirit of adventure. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to dumb it down. We're not trying to 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 uh, to just go with the flow. We're trying to bring back that spirit of adventure. And and you said it exactly right. The exuberance, the energy, the youthfulness, recapturing what they used to do and, and showing these the new clients and showing uh, the, the the developers, hey, we could do this and, and people will like it. And, and the bandwagon is rolling. And my job is to show Mr. Kaiser and, and 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 communicate with him that I'm going to try this and, and this is going to be really cool because if I don't have I maximized the land that he has given me if I just put two saucer bunkers by the green what have I done for that land absolutely nothing but if I think about instead of two saucer saucer bunkers I think about a bump right in front of the green or I get Kyle Franz to shape some cool little features right in front. It's that exuberance. It's that energy. Why do you think I hang around young people? They give you that energy to explore. They give you that energy to step over the line, to to not let that fence be the border, to have no boundaries. Uh, you got me all fired up, Derek, and that's what, make, that's what makes good golf course architecture. It's not about how much money you throw at it. It's about the energy that you give it 
give it energy, give it exuberance, give it the chance to have the spirit of adventure, and you will be successful. And I'm done. I'm tired. I got a headache. <laughs> well, let's. I don't want to. I don't want to make make you uh, make you have a headache, Jim. Um, I apologize for that. <laughs> Maybe we're I, giving all the listeners a headache by by uh, putting out these two hour podcasts, two hour plus podcasts. But uh, if anybody complains, you, uh, send send your complaints to Mister Urbina. <laughs> you just got me fired up because that's what Darwin talked about—the spirit of adventure—and that's what's happening as you described it. It's that new look. It's that new feel. It's that let's try it. Why not try it? If you don't like it, that's okay. But if we didn't try it, we'll never know, will we? Yeah, and we go through periods in in, in probably any art. You could you know draw a parallel to film, but there are other periods in time where where the the the, the creatives are in lockstep with, with what's popular and, and, or what the client wants, what the studio wants. Uh, let's do another, uh, superhero movie, you know, let's do another sequel to this, you know, let's reboot this old television show. You know, that's not very creative. And then you, you go through periods and it's usually driven by a, a youth movement. It's usually driven by, by people who want to achieve something, you know, independent voices who see something that they're not they're not currently getting and want to do it. That's where the change comes from. And, and that's what happened. I think, you know, in this last two decades or so, but it kind of started with, with a a different outlook on golf. It maybe wasn't quite as client oriented. It was more about the actual golf and the land and, and what the strategies of the holes were going to be. And Gil talked about it with us. You know, he's going to, he's going to take a chance here or there. Uh, you asked him about Ohupi. He took a little chance here and there, a match play, an owner that that allowed him to, to be a, a, a little bit more creative. Nothing wrong with that, Derek. No, Nothing the, wrong with that. His greens at Streamsong Black are one of the, the freshest ideas that, that we've seen in I don't know how long. And I don't know how translatable that is. I think that's probably pretty expensive to, to try to you know maintain at putting heights greens that are... 15,000 square feet or whatever they are, but what a radical idea. And it's, it's incredibly imaginative. So yeah, he does put, he is trying new things and he said it, it's, it's his prerogative. He feels a responsibility to do that. I wish everybody felt that way. Well, I think there are other designers, architects out there doing it. And, and if, if, if we are the benefactors, if we reap the benefits of that, of that creativity, uh, I'm all for it, aren't you? Absolutely. That we yeah. we want we want interesting golf, fun, interesting, interesting. golf to wrap to, to bring it whole circle. Oh. Fun, <laughs> <laughs> the great the mo- the greatest good, the greatest fun for the most people. And we're in an open space. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Well, let's stop there, Jim. Um, what a what a nice conversation with Gil. Agreed. I don't know who's going. We're going to talk to next, but I'm looking forward to it. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Thank you, Derek. It's a blast, as always. 